Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Good morning. How are we? Good. A little more awake now, maybe? I, I enjoyed that, like, five seconds of awkwardness where you could see me and the video wasn't over and I just stared at you all like, uh, here we are. But here we are. Hey, well, my name is Sean. Um, so excited you guys are here. Real quick, if you want to follow along on our app, uh, you can download that and actually has our sermon notes on it. Um, if you go to your app store, and I think it's uh, my church app, and then you can click um, it'll show Trailside there. So as we're getting there, if you don't have it, you should have enough time to download it. If not, we've got that sweet little notes on the back. If I happen to say anything that you're just like, man, that was life changing for me. I'm so excited. I'm going to put in vinyl on my house and my car. I, it's, it's never happened ever. But, um, but hey, I want to start with a, with a story, I think, this morning. And, um, you know, we're walking through the Gospel of John here. And what I've seen and what I hope you've seen, if you've been following along or if you've missed and kind of maybe caught up on the podcast, is that up to this point, things have been pretty good with Jesus, right? I'm only five chapters in, so I know there's always time for things to mess up. But up to this point, things have been really good with Jesus. You know, he starts out, and we had uh, the Southern Baptist favorite of the, uh, the wedding at Cana where God changed the water into grape juice. And then, uh, you know, he came and started healing folks. That was a joke if you are unaware of that, if you haven't been here before. But um, you know, he starts healing folks, and uh, he comes, and he's meeting all these needs, and people are being changed. And up until this point, he's pretty excited. Like, the world is pretty happy with this guy, Jesus, who's walking around. Well, what we're going to see today in John 5, as we actually are beginning to draw a close to our summer series in John, which we'll have part two later in the year, but... Um, what we're going to see is this moment where the honeymoon phase with Jesus and all of culture is kind of over. And have you guys ever been to that moment, maybe in a relationship where you have the honeymoon phase? You guys been there before? Yeah? Some of you guys are like, are excited about that. Some of you are not excited about that at all. Um, yeah, the, the honeymoon phase. And I found... Um, that with the honeymoon phase, you know, we kind of get in this moment where we're like, man, I found the perfect person, right? And, and they are great, and they like me back. This cannot get any better. This is how it is going to be forever, because this person is never mad. This person doesn't yell at me about the music being too loud or clothes on the floor. She never will. Thank you, God, I have found her, right? Yeah, that's how it is forever, right? And that, not so much, yeah. So I want to tell you this story, and I'm going to warn you, it's a bit juvenile, okay? So I'm just going to throw that out there. I want you to go ahead and deal with that in your heart now. But I want to tell you about the moment that I knew my honeymoon phase was over with my wife. Now, I just want to tell you, this might paint me in a different light, so you just got to be ready, okay? Lane and I had been dating for um, probably about, what, eight weeks, hun? Six weeks? She doesn't even know. Got nothing. I even prepped her here. She, yeah. Um, so we're, we're hanging out. She's on the phone with her best friend, Kelly. And I was 19 at the time. Lane was 21. <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, it's whatever. It's, it's, no, it's no video. Um, I'm about to be very not cool in a minute. Don't worry. So we're hanging out. And I think we were going to get food. And I, I drove this little uh, black Chevy Cavalier because that's what was cool then, I want to say. I had frosted tips, you know, to go with the Chevy Cavalier and the NSYNC dance moves. It was really something else. Um, 
And she's on the phone talking to her friend. And so I did the right thing. I opened the car door and like set her down, close the door, because that's what you should do. And fellas have been here not doing that. Step your game up. Um, and I don't know what happened from the moment I, I closed her door and walked around to my door. But I, I had this thing where I just forgot where I was. Right, I had no idea what was happening. I lost total context of the situation, and I sat down. And when I sat down, my stomach just gurgled. And without thinking, I leaned over, and I just, I just let a huge one loose right at my girlfriend at the time. And what happened was this instantaneous thing where, you know, like when you see a car wreck or maybe you've been in an accident, Everything slows down, but it happens really fast, and you don't know what actually happened. You know what I mean? That's 19-year-old me. I was like, well, that's it. We're done, right? Because you can see this thing just, just down, like spiraling down. It's all over. In this half second, my life is incomplete. And in, in addition to that, this isn't a story that I can lie about later. She's on the phone with her best friend. So it's obvious that, like, you know, the world is going to know about this. Thank God we didn't have Facebook yet. Um, but I knew in that moment, in that half second, the honeymoon phase was over with Lane, and the future of our relationship was about to be shown to me. There was no, no question about that. Um, I told you it was juvenile. I'm sorry. Um, so I started sweating immediately, right? I probably already was sweating, but I was sweating immediately. Um, and and I, I just kind of turned and looked at her. And I, was, I didn't know what I was hoping for, but I remember her being on the phone and like stopping mid-sentence and looking over at me. <laughs> Like blown away. This is true, right? This is honest truth. And like her jaw dropped and she goes, oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and before she even says anything to me, is talking on the phone and recounts what just happened to her friend on the phone. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I have no hope. The relationship's over. And then she started laughing. And I was like, okay, maybe while she's laughing and I'm dying inside that there'll be hope here. Um, because that was the future of our relationship, I, I just thought she's probably going to go to dinner with me here, you know, get some free food, um, and then find some other uh, incredible boy at North Greenville University College at the time, but university now. Um, and I just knew I'd been betrayed by my own comfort. That like one moment, I kind of lost context, and it was over. But thankfully, uh, the honeymoon phase was over. But you know, um, she's still here, and uh, now we have children, so she can't go anywhere, which is great. Um, <laughs> And I'm sorry for that terribly immature story, but I think uh, that's exactly what we kind of find in John, well, not exactly, but the context of what we find in John 5 here with that like level of immaturity that kind of comes and uh, this forgetting the context of a situation and then seeing how people deal with Jesus is, is really what we're about to find out. Because up to this point, like I said, is fame is growing People are in love with him. And then we come to John 5, and it's kind of the beginning of the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. And what you read in the next few chapters, I'm going to give you a preview. It's actually kind of huge. Like John, John 5, the religious leaders begin, as we talk about here in a minute, to desire to kill him. And then John 6, a bunch of his followers and disciples leave him, disassociate with him. They're done. It gets too hard. And then in, in chapter 7, uh, he's called demon-possessed. And now, instead of just the Pharisees wanting to kill him, now the population at large also wants to. So in three chapters' time, Jesus goes from being a hero to being everyone wanting him dead or gone. In just that little bit of time. And so it's the beginning of this end of the honeymoon phase, and it comes because Jesus starts doing some unpopular things with the religious people. And so in order to correctly walk through our scripture today, 
Um, I'm actually, I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to go back a little bit. Um, But we're in John 5, and uh, starting in verse 18. This is what God's word says. This is why the Jews, in verse 18, were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show them so that you may marvel. For as a father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor him just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And I pray as we dive in and unpack this this morning that your presence would be here and you'd convict our hearts. Make us more like you and less like us. Let this deal with Um, our own convictions, our our presuppositions, with the things we brought in here. And as we leave, Lord, let it be freedom for us. Let it be hope for us. Let it be a a day where things in our lives and our hearts change forever. We love you. Thank you for your word that you've given to us so we might know more of you. Until your name we pray. Amen. So to give kind of the context of this, because if you just parachute in and grab that scripture, it's a very wordy, kind of a lot going on, a little confusing probably, um, I want to give a little bit of context to what actually is happening here. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you heard Mikey Smith, our student minister, actually teach on this uh, entire situation that happens. But I want to give you a very quick rundown, not because Mikey didn't do a good job, but just because I want everyone to understand where we're at. So in the first half of John 5, Jesus is found at this place called Bethesda, which literally means the house of mercy. Pretty cool. Um, And here's what he finds. He walks in and he's at this healing pool and it's filled with people who are paralyzed, who are deaf, who are mute, who have something wrong with them, some disease, anything that's not normal that would make them unclean or less valuable than a normal person. And so Jesus walks into this place, this pool at Bethesda, and there's just people everywhere sprawled out, right? All over the place. Now imagine this. Imagine thinking like, okay, well, um, the world is great and everyone's great and fantastic and it looks beautiful, utopia out here. And then you go into this place of mercy and you see it just littered with bodies. Kind of a hard thing to figure out, to think about for us. But that's what it was. It was literally this huge pool with people all around it waiting, just waiting in their brokenness. And And Jesus walks in and he sees these people and what they're waiting for is kind of this bad theological kind of mystic thing where they would say the pool would stir, like an angel would come down and stir the pool. And as people saw it stirring, the first one to touch the water was healed miraculously. And so all these people are waiting around for this pool to stir and it never stirs and people are growing and and Jesus walks in and he finds this man who has been waiting by the pool for 38 years years. 38 years. Now, I'm not even 38 years old yet. And this guy's been waiting for 38 years. And if you are older than 38, you probably have a good understanding of what that timeline is like. 
And he's been waiting and waiting and waiting. And Jesus walks up to him. He finds the deepest pain, the hardest situation. One of the longest waits have to have been by then because people didn't live that long. And he walks up to this guy and he says, do you want to be healed? Now imagine that. Imagine someone walking up to you and being like, hey, I know you're struggling financially. Would you like $10 million? Or hey, I know your child is suffering with cancer. Would you, would you like me just to take that away from them? Right? Our response is going to be, uh, of course. Yes. Do it now. Please. And so this guy looks at Jesus and he's like, well, you know, I love that. But I don't have anyone to throw me in the water. Like when we see it stirring, I just can't get there fast enough. And, and that's the same thing that we experience in our own lives and that Jesus is going to come to annihilate out of us is that we're, we're waiting right here and, and we're sitting in our comfortable pain and Jesus is saying, do you want to be healed? And we're going, well, you know, I can't, I can't get to the water. Sounds great, but yeah, I got these barriers, these things. And so Jesus heals this man and he does it without actually even the man knowing who he is, right? Because if we go a little further, the Pharisees come and they find him like, hey, who did this? Who healed you? And he goes, I don't know. There's just this guy. Just this dude. Which as a side note, as a side note, excuse me, says a lot about TV evangelists that you guys probably see. And bad theology, which when people are sick, people say like, oh, well, if you just had a little more faith, Right? Like, if you just believed a little harder, then God could heal you. If you just tried a little more, then God would take it from you. Or the real bad ones, like, if you just give us some more money and sow a seed of faith, God will deliver you. Guys, that bad theology is still rampant now from then, and even before that, honestly. But notice Jesus doesn't give him the opportunity to have a lot of faith. He just says, do you want to be healed? And then heals him anyways. As Jesus said, or as the guy says, oh, you know, I can't get down there. The Lord's like, nope, boom, healed, gone. And then disappears. <clears throat> so the man is healed, but then Jesus does it on a Sabbath. Whoops. Can you imagine the gall of Jesus to break religious law? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Right? The Pharisee would have rather him be like, that's great, but it's Saturday. So I'll be here in 12 hours, lay here by the pool meet you here, then I'll heal you when the Lord allows it. Because you know, we don't want to break religious law right now. So Jesus heals them on a Sabbath, and here's what happens. The religious people lose their minds. Lose their minds. Right? We've seen this. Have you, maybe you guys have seen this in churches today. I was, um, I was an intern at this wonderful church in Charleston. Uh, great place in the middle of downtown. And um, I remember the youth pastor and I got together and we went and played trivia at a bar downtown, right? Like a restaurant bar kind of thing. Because I love trivia. Um, one time office champion, by the way, 13 stripes, just saying, yeah. There's some, my team out there hollering, yeah, um, we won, it's whatever. But, uh, but we went out there and, and we had a great time. We had like a burger, it was a King Street Grill. We came back. And for those of y'all who have been to Charleston, know the deliciousness of the King Street Grill and those waffle fries. Oh, anyways, I'm hungry. Um, came back, and that next 
Sunday, it was on Wednesday night, and that next Sunday, we came back, and we actually got sat down by one of the deacons who was like, that was a bar you went to. Like, they serve alcohol there. I'm, I was like a 22-year-old college student. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's why we went. It was awesome, right? <laughs> because breaking these religious codes that we have, like we put moralism in there and say that God can't operate in that. And then I think Jesus would just throw the whole thing out anyways, if he saw it. And that's what happens here. Like they get mad because Jesus healed on a Sabbath, healed on a Saturday. And so what I want to do is we give that context and then break into our, our scripture today is I want to give us three things that the Pharisees miss that we can't. That, that we cannot afford to. That if we miss the same things the Pharisees miss, we risk becoming very moralistic people who don't actually operate in the power of who Jesus is. Which, y'all, is rampant in this country. The first thing that they miss is they miss what Jesus had done. So, when, when they go and approach Jesus... Their, their thought isn't, man, that was amazing. How did you heal that guy? Like, this guy's been waiting for 38 years, and, and now he's not? Like, he's walking around carrying his bed? Well, what happened? No, they go to Jesus, and they go, hey, listen, um, what do you think you're doing? It was Sabbath. All right? They approach a the guy, and like, who did this to you? Because they want to find him out, and they want to string him up. Because he broke religious law. Oh, See, the Pharisees miss the entire miracle because their authority was disrupted by the method of how it got healed. Because it took authority away from them. It made them not as great, not as important. And, and they're disrupted because they feel threatened by this new authority of Jesus. By a man who would walk in to the house of mercy and give it, and bestow it upon someone for nothing. And the Pharisees are, are mad at that. They miss what Jesus has done. Like, and that's what it is, guys. Religion says we have to do this like this in order to get what God wants, right? This is the method. We, we uh, take these Bible tracts, and we go on the street corner, and we hand them out, and then we don't engage anybody. We just go, here you go. Mm -hmm. Or we leave them on urinals. Y'all, gross, number one. The amount of Bible tracts I've picked up off the top of urinals and then thrown away and then cried all the way to the soap um, is awful, right? But we're like, this is how evangelism is done. Let's put this down. We'll make it look like a $100 bill and people will love it and we'll trick them and be like, got you with the gospel, <laughs> right? We say things like that people are unapproachable and they don't belong because of whatever in their lives. We disqualify them from the gospel. Or we get caught up on theological nuances and we say, that doesn't happen here. We can't do that. We cry over colors of carpet. And then the world sees the church destroying itself and they're going, I don't want to be a part of that. Because re religiousness says we have to do this, this way to get this outcome so God will be happy. But Jesus says, trust in me, watch what I do and I'll change the world. Because notice, again, the guy doesn't ask to be healed. He just says, I can't get there. And Jesus goes, boop, take up your bed and go. 
And here's why that matters, because the Pharisees and their religious law were so hardcore that they actually wouldn't allow you to do stuff that even resembled work because God rested on the seventh day. So this is how bad it was. If you spit as a person walking along the road and you land it and your spit lands on rocks, you're safe. That is a religious spittle. Everything's okay. But if your spit rolls off a rock and into dirt where plants could be planted, well, that's the same as plowing. And you've now broken religious law and are worthy of a flogging. And, and that's the level of law that these guys would stick to. If your spit touched dirt, you were in sin. I, I heard on a, another podcast, a pastor was talking, and he said there was another rule where guys couldn't carry a whole fruit in their pocket or in their bag with them on Sabbath. Because a whole fruit was deemed too heavy. And if it's too heavy, then you're working. And God forbid you work and carry a fruit on a Sabbath. Unbelievable. So the law, this is, this is real. You can look this up. The law is you'd have to cut the fruit in half and carry half of it with you. And then get all your clothes all juicy. Right? You got to stay in your pocket. Nah, man, that was my, uh, my orange. I put it fruit out. Feels better on the leg. But that's what we're talking about. That's law. That's what religious law looks like. And so these Pharisees are getting mad. And even in verse 10, they approach the guy. And they're like, hey, you're carrying your bed on Sabbath. You can't do that. Y'all, listen, the only way he can't do that on Sabbath is if his job was to carry a bed around. But when we have our religious law and it gets broken and we get angry, we don't typically say things that make sense. We typically just judge and point and get angry. And we see that religious people, especially in this time, become more concerned with their own poor application of scriptural truth instead of how they love people and what God does. And so they miss what Jesus has done for the sake of their own anger. And, and we do this too, guys. I mean, listen, we see this in the church. If you haven't seen this in the church, it's because you haven't been around church people, which, uh, spoiler alert, you live in Greenville, South Carolina, or around it, you've seen religious people, right? There's churches everywhere. There's religious people everywhere. There's Jesus fish on every car, except mine, because sometimes I get mad in traffic. Right? There it is. Took a second. We got it. Yeah. But we do this too. We say like that person can't really be a, like, do you know, do you know what he's done? That there's no way God could redeem that. No way. Mm -mm. Or maybe like me, when I first became a Christian, I didn't have everything worked out, right? I'm not the perfect man I am now. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. It's a joke. Let's not even get crazy on that. But I remember I was 18 and I had a friend who um, was not a Christian and I think I did something bad or mean to them. They were like, I thought you were a Christian now. I'm like, oh, that's right. Forgot my sleeve of protection. It's, uh, it's in Ephesians 6, armor of God. I always forget that one part, sorry. But, but it's not about that. Like, that and that's what religious, thing, religious people, religious ideals, they say is, like, here's a man that was paralyzed for 38 years waiting by a pool who's now healed. But that was done on a Sabbath. Not a real healing doesn't work. You broke the law of God. 
And that's what the Pharisees say, who did this to you? But this is where we find the switch for Jesus. It's where the honeymoon phase is over because he just dealt with this kind of conversation six times before. And he would do things like point back to the Old Testament and kind of fix bad theology. Or he'd preach and say, you've heard it. Maybe you guys remember this uh, series of scripture. He says, you've heard it said, da, 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 but I tell you, da, 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 right? Kind of flips it. Or he says, you know, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. But this time he does something totally different. And he just does it right away in verse 18. This is what he says. <clears throat> Pardon me. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he even called himself, I'm sorry, he, excuse me, but he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In verse 17, Jesus answered them, my father is working now and I am working. In verse 19, because I like to mix it up like that. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So when they answer Jesus, he says, he doesn't do the nice thing anymore. He's like, you know what? Here's the answer. Here's why I can heal on Sabbath, because whatever the father is doing, the son is doing, and that's me, and that's my father. Notice he says my father to the Pharisees, right? Not our father. If you have multiple children, maybe you've had this awesome conversation where your kids fight about who their dad is or who their mom is. Have you guys done that before? Yeah. It was like a year ago, I think. It was actually during the summer a year ago, yeah. Uh, Emma looked at, looked at me and Colin, and she goes, that's my daddy. And I was like, yeah, it is, yeah. And Colin was like, no, that's my daddy. And I'm like, okay, a fight's breaking out over me. I don't know if I should stop this or let it go, right? Kind of exciting. That's what Jesus does. He says, my father, my father has been working until now. And that's why we get to verse 18 where it says that the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Because point number two is this, that the Pharisees, the Pharisee heart, excuse me, misses who Jesus is. And so Jesus goes on this little mini speech and he talks about who he actually is. What equality with God actually means. Now, this is a really key part of Scripture. <coughs> Excuse me. Tons of cults, of cultic belief systems, have taken this and just disposed of it because they would tell you that Jesus is not truly God. The Trinity doesn't exist. Like Jehovah's Witnesses would say that. Mormons would say that. And what Jesus explains here is a very, very clear picture. And so I'm going to read starting in verse 19 through this because what he says is really key and it's key for us this morning. He says, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So people would say, oh, well, obviously that's not the same God. He's listening, doing what he says. Let's keep reading though. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show them, so you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus is saying, it's obvious here that it's not just me. I'm not acting rogue. Like the Son doesn't just do what he wants. Instead, the Father, the Father sends, the Father gives heart, and the Son is the action behind it. So two of the three parts of the Godhead working distinctly but being one God, one thought, one process, but in different 
avenues, different roles. <clears throat> and what happens here is that the Pharisees get mad. They, they want to kill him not because they're mad about the Sabbath, but because he claimed to be God. Like that's what ticks them off. And even more so than that, I would venture to say this, is that they actually don't want to kill him because of him saying he's God. They want to kill him because it's a vehicle for their jealousy to be lived out, for their anger. They want to use rules to settle a personal grievance. And guys, we do that all the time, all the time. We're in church. We are a community. And you know what we're really good at? You know what we are really, really good at? Holding each other guilty and not giving grace and forgiving. I'm good at it. Because insecurity comes up, because anger comes up. And so we do the same thing the Pharisees do. We look for a vehicle to get rid of the threat instead of being a community of coming to people and saying, hey, we have this, let's work through it. And as Matthew 18 says, resolve it and be brothers again. It's a Pharisee mindset. It's because we're consistently fighting against our own brokenness with our own desire to control our own lives. But we say Jesus is Lord. Lordship doesn't allow us to control our own life, guys. Lordship is the full giving away of ourselves. It's not like I love Jesus and I'm going to try to do better here. It's like I love Jesus, so I'm going to pursue him with everything I have so that when I mess up, I have a place of grace. And then we have that in common. You can walk with me as a brother and a sister in Christ, and we'll eventually get there together. That's, that's what that is. Community can't happen if we are the judge. It can't, relationship can't happen if we're the judge. Listen, if my wife was the judge of me, I, I'm not alive anymore. <laughs> right? I know, that's what I would say. But when we understand who Jesus is, it becomes easy for us to trust his lordship. He says, go, we go. He says, do, we do. He says, serve, we serve. The heart is owned by God and the action is placed in it by God and he allows us to be used in it. And so in verse 19, Jesus says that. He says, there's nothing I do myself. The father initiates, he sends, he commissions, he grants, and then I as the son respond, obey and do his will. And look, this is why, what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? When Jesus is praying and he says the very famous words that also confuse us a little bit, Father, not my will, but what? Yours. Yeah, it's cool. We can talk in church. We're fine. Yeah, but yours be done. See, people read that and they're like, ha, Jesus isn't really God. He has to listen to God. No. No, Jesus is saying, like, I am in submission to your action. I will do what it is that will demonstrate your love. And if it doesn't have to be this, that's great. But if, if it is, then it is. And, and I, I'm faithful. I will do exactly what it takes. <clears throat> in verse 20, let me read that again for us real quick. For the Father loves the Son and shows him what he himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown, will he show him, excuse me, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives him life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And in verse 20, Jesus blows some minds, right? Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. This guy just got healed from 38 years, is hanging out. They already know all the things Jesus has done. He's like, listen, uh, God shows his love, and I, I demonstrate it with action, but so that you might be blown away and marvel 
This isn't even the best. There's more coming. It's number three thing that the Pharisee heart misses is he misses what Jesus will do. It's almost like Jesus is saying, get ready. Y'all ain't seen nothing yet. Like if, you know, Jesus was Southern. Um, thank you, Nathan. He says, get ready. You ain't seen nothing yet. He goes, so that you will marvel and be blown away by what I am capable of and what God has done, get ready because it's coming. So these Pharisees who are mad at Jesus, who think that they're approaching him with this law that he's broken in order to remove him and take away his establishment, he goes, oh, you like that? Check this out. You don't even know what's coming. It's so much better. It's a delicious moment when you read on this side of Scripture. And then verse 21, he says, he's like, you know, like raising people from the dead. Man, I think the Pharisees probably felt like they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar there a little bit, you know? He's like, here's what it is. For as a father, verse 21, as a father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Interesting statement. Don't have time to break that down. 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Again, shifting that, right? We're seeing the, the Trinity come out a little bit here. Roles, purposes. <clears throat> that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent, and sorry, and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So Jesus, so Jesus says, what you've seen is only a precursor. And remember, these guys have seen Jesus raise people from the dead, right? They, they've seen Lazarus raised from the dead. They've seen uh, Jairus' son raised from the dead. They've seen a child who was dead healed without Jesus ever touching them. They know what he's doing. And he's saying, and all the things you've already seen, it's not even the best. The best is still yet to come. He's like, because here's what's going to happen. People are going to be raised from the dead. And God the Father has given the Son the authority to judge them. And if they live righteously and know me and trust me, they will be with me in eternity. It's like, then he gives the other half. But if not, there'll be eternity of judgment. See, Jesus healing the man was a sign, but his prompt, but excuse me, but his promise is the resurrection. He says, I'm gonna do this thing much greater called resurrection. So get ready. It's coming. There's a day when none of this is gonna hold you back anymore. But you gotta trust in me. As a as a pastor, I get a lot of questions about what's a big word, SAT word for the day, eschatology. Just means a study of end times, right? Who remembers the end times books from like a decade ago? Anybody? All right, great. Here's all the people who knew Jesus. Well, I'm just kidding. I, didn't, I, I wasn't a Christian until after most of them came out. But I remember that being a huge thing, right? They made movies. It's a big deal. And you're like, man, when the rapture happens, like God's going to Trumpets going to go, and then people are going to rise up and be gone, and cars are going to be driving down the road, and there's going to be one guy in church who's like, I should have known Jesus sooner. I'm the only one, right? I'm all that's left. So we get these questions a lot because people don't want to be left behind, and that's not good theology. But when I say, what do you think is going to happen? 
You know what my answer is? It's right here with Jesus, like what Jesus says. Like the sun's going to come, he's going to call everyone out, and then some will go to heaven and some will go to hell based on if they know and love him. That's it. There's a great quote by a guy named Doug Wilson who's a, a theologian, and people said, what's your view of the end times? And he goes, well, you know, I believe in this and this and this. And he goes, but I'm willing to change my viewpoint midair. And I love that, right? It's like, well, we, we can know about it, but, you know, like, okay, if Jesus has a different route than I thought, I'm good with that. That's okay. I just know Jesus is coming. That's all I know, and that's all I need to know. Jesus crucified, resurrected, and coming again. That's it. And I know there's a future resurrection of one that's to life and eternity and one to death and judgment, or to life, or, well, to, yeah, to death and judgment. But what this does for us this morning as we close is it gives us the opportunity to have the heart of one of these two groups, the heart of the Pharisee or the heart of the redeemed. And so church, the question I have for you today that I have also battled with is this, um, look at your life, look at your desires, your actions, your attitudes, how you respond, I think tells a lot about the heart as well, how you respond to people, your attitude toward others. And and ask yourself this, what are my actions saying about my heart? Right? What do my actions say about my heart? Listen, there's some really bad Christian theology that says if you want to have a really good life, just fix these things and do these things better. Don't lie as much. Don't lust as much. Be kinder with your money. Give, serve. That, That makes God more proud of you. And the more you do that, the happier you'll be and the more you'll fall in love with Jesus. That's terrible theology. Terrible, terrible theology. Because actions, actions aren't saving. Actions are symptomatic of the heart, but they're not salvific of the heart. Like, the way you treat people doesn't mean that you follow Jesus. When you follow Jesus dictates how you treat people. But we've messed that up because we make it man-centric because it's got to be our control, guys. It's got to be what we do. I'm a better person than you. No. Follow Jesus. Watch what he does. That's it. Be more like Jesus. Watch how you change. Follow Jesus harder. Watch how you serve your wife more. Pursue Jesus harder. Watch how your husband is cared for by you. Watch how you treat your kids, your brothers, your sisters, your friends people around you. As Jesus said, it's out of the overflow of heart, the mouth speaks, not salvation comes. But the action of the Pharisees is not the determining factor of whether they will have eternal life. Just as well as your actions that you have do not determine your eternity, but it does display your heart to the world around you. See, the status of your heart is determined by its state. See, the status of your heart is determined by its state, how it sits in your chest. Not the things you say. That's just a a demonstration, a fruit, if you will, of your heart. Fruit does not, it's not Jesus plus my good works equals salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I'm going to do what I can to be more like him. So life gets a little better because the more you follow and the harder you follow him, the better your life will be because you're becoming more like him and less like you. And the things that you would love and want don't mean as much. So don't get so stressed about them. 
And this is like financially has been the big thing for me in the last couple of years. When I realize it's not my money anyways, it's God's and he's going to give me exactly what I need when I need it and take care of me, things get a lot easier. People can't hold things over me. When I determine that no one in the world decides if I'm going to be with Jesus or not, then their, their ability to get on the internet and rip me apart or tell me I'm not a good Christian or whatever disappears because they're not the authority. Because the status of heart is due to the state of your heart. And the state of your heart is determined by the one who possesses it. And so Jesus gives this immediate hope to those whose fruit has proven their hearts in verse 29. He says, those who have done good to eternal life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so church, if you're struggling, if you're owned by anger and sin, if you're owned by things that you just can't get over, and y'all listen, so many people I know stories that I've talked to where you're just tired of fighting so hard, stop, stop fighting with yourself. Stop, stop using law and rules to make yourself happy and run and pursue Jesus and watch what he does. It, it is that simple. I, you know, I mean, genuinely, like, so I don't mean to make salvation easy, but here you go. Uh, that's all it says. It is that simple. But we have to stop treating symptoms of the heart as the main issues of the heart. That's not what they are. We have to stop fixing the symptom and address the fruit of the heart. I'm sorry. We have to stop fixing the symptom and the fruit of the heart and address the actual heart. We have to allow Jesus, who is the God of the impossible, to strike the root of the issue and the thing which bothers you and haunts you and hurts you that you don't want anyone to know because if they do, then they'll know you. If they know you, then you'll be known, and that's scary. We have to allow Jesus to do exactly what he says he'll do which is to bend down in the heart and the, and the room of the paralytic and broken and hurt and tired and insecure and angry and confused. He walks into the house of mercy by the pool and he lifts us up from our death. He doesn't say, if you can stand up and get to me, I'll bless you. He picks us up off the pavement and restores us. And when the religious people gather and discredit you, and when they tell you that your story is too hard or too broken or that you're not good enough or you don't have it all together and they try to discredit you and your honeymoon phase is over, I want you to lean on the eternal God who gave the eternal promise that nothing on this earth can overcome what it is he has given and offered to you that is salvation and that is forever. That no man can ever take that away from you. Because Jesus, God of the impossible, gives the promise and calls and regenerates and redeems. No man does. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I shall by no means cast out. Because church, your eternity is eternally secured and being guarded by Jesus. Not religion, not moralism, or not the idea that there's a God probably out there. It is the creator of the universe who says you are his and nothing can take that away. All he does is call you to him. That, that is the gospel. 
And Christian, if you're in here and you already follow Jesus, I think we need to hear that more than anybody. So don't forget. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you restore us, that you hold us, that you care for us, that you are watching out for us, that it's not rules, it's not morals, it's not even our own abilities that save us, or that dictate hope. It's instead just you. So Father, my prayer is that if there are people in here who need to give that away, God, that you would encourage them to do so, that you would embolden their hearts. And Father, as we prepare to respond and worship before we leave today, that we wouldn't leave here carrying the same thing out that we carried in. And so, Father, if that's control that we need to give to you, if that's fear that we need to give to you, if that's insecurity or if it's feelings of anxiety or hurt or whatever that might be, God, whatever it is, you already know. And I ask that you would help us to not carry it out with us, but we will leave it here at your feet. Because we know you love us and you restore us and you care for us. So Lord, as we worship now, help us to believe that, to walk in that, to acknowledge it and to know, God, that you are good. There's nothing that can steal that from us ever. We love you. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person, or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church. Or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.